welcome to The Burn-Up, where I discuss all things Agile with colleagues, clients, and industry leaders. We will be giving you an honest take on tools and techniques, we'll share our experiences, debunk myths, and hopefully provide valuable inspiration. I'm Marcel Bridge, digital consultant, product owner, and business analyst. I've worked in digital before this even had a name, and since have been quite a bit around the blog. I've seen the good and the bad, and this is my way of giving back to the industry. So sit back, relax, and settle in for this week's episode. I'm recorded, all right. Be careful what I say now, no extreme political opinions. No, that, that stuff I live in, all the swear words and the political opinions. It's usually just when someone's like, oh shit, I shouldn't have slacked that client off or disclosed this. <laughs> Luke, we've been wanting to do this for a while. And I think we're just both really busy and it didn't didn't work. But we spoke about this a y- over a year ago, yeah, I think. Yeah. We worked together, I don't know, it was maybe five years ago now or something. And I quite like the way you work as a software engineer and your approach to it, because I think it's it, it delivers a lot of value very fast in, in a really good way. Um, but before we go there, tell me a little bit about yourself. Like, what do you do? How do you see your role? And, and how did you end up there? I'm Luke. I'm from Australia, from Canberra, Australia. I've been a software engineer my whole career for the past 15 years. Um, and I started working um, in Australia and being from Canberra, the capital, it was all like government work. Even if you were working for a private company, it tended to be government work. And little did I know that it was, looking back, that was like a really bad place to start my career because it was like super waterfall, like big upfront design projects. You're like so disconnected from the user. Um, and it was only uh, a few years into my career when I moved over to London, where I've been living and working ever since, that I realized, like, oh, there's a different way to do things. You can actually try these things called agile, lean, um, and modern development practices. So after coming to, to London, I got exposed to a lot of different, more recent um, ideas and like ways of working. Um, and I think that's really... It was like a really big mindset change for me, realizing that, oh, actually, you can deliver like loads of value if you have less process, if you're closer to the customer, and if you let the technology drive things. Um, And I learned those lessons from working in a lot of different places. So I was a contractor and then a consultant for many years. And uh, and then more recently, um, I spent two and a half years as a tech lead in a startup, putting everything I'd learned over the past 10 years into practice. And I worked in a team that was by far the best engineering team I ever was part of, where mm. we were delivering, it was 12 people, we were delivering releases into production 20 times a day. We were like super lean, super focused on customer value. Engineers would be talking to customers, getting feedback from customers, and we really tightened those feedback loops. Talk to me about what you just said there. I think it was quite interesting. You made a couple of points around um, engineers talking directly to customers delivering 20 times a day while I've been in similar environments and obviously working with you. And I know this works really well. I've also had engineers, but also clients be a bit worried about that kind of these things because they seem to introduce a lot of risk on all sides. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you feel and why it's maybe not a risk or why it's a good thing? Yeah, I guess the the difference that I've seen in really slow moving, slow delivery organizations and fast mm-hmm. ones, the differences are there's a lot of like technical practices that are much better in the faster moving ones. But I think that no matter how good your technical practices are, if your engineers don't really understand what they're supposed to be delivering or why they're supposed to be delivering it for the customer, 
Um, you could be moving really fast but delivering the wrong thing. And I think that's the, the, the biggest difference I've seen between organizations that are actually delivering value is that engineers really understand the, the why. And a big part mm. of that, I think, is, is being connected, being close to customers. So there's the extreme case where you can actually try and talk directly to your customers as an engineer, um, yeah. which a lot of places do. But probably it's more common to have people who represent the customer you really understand the customer deeply. I think people like you actually delivery leads or product owners mm -hmm. um, who work with the engineers really closely to make sure they understand the why. Why is this this valuable? I guess combining that with engineers that really care and who question and who don't want to work on something that isn't valuable. Yeah, like myself. Um, I think mm -hmm. I think I, I learned that lesson. And when I talk to engineers that that feel the same way, I think I learned that lesson by being on projects that uh, you, th you felt you were really productive on the project and then you later on find out it was a complete failure. <laughs> and I mean, I've been on quite a few failed projects and I just realized that all that time I spent like tweaking and fiddling with the code just to make it just so, it didn't really matter because I found out a year later, oh yeah, that project was completely canned after you left because we realized that nobody cared about it, nobody wanted those features. So, oh great. I spent a lot of I spent a lot of time in my career on 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 projects that never really saw the light of day, and I want to I try now I try as hard as I can to prevent that from happening. I think this is so interesting you say this because I don't think we admit that sometimes that we all have worked on projects that never saw the light of day, where I think you have worked on on a similar thing like me where you build the most beautiful uh, platform infrastructure platform or microservice platform but there's nothing ever on it that actually delivers any value you just build one just build these frameworks yeah. for then later to build this perfect system on top but then people realize that either they run out of money or it's actually not what they needed at all or they're too late they missed the train basically on in the market i joined a company that was um, quite a small company mm -hmm. it was only like 30 40 people and i, I joined um, as a contractor and i worked on an existing project for six months And then they asked if I wanted to join their new platform that I've been hearing a lot about for my six months there um, as the, like the new shining platform that's going to replace everything. And then when I joined it, I realized that they'd only ever talked about the features of this microservice rebuild that they were doing, but they, they didn't have any customers and they'd been working on it for more than a year. And so they were, they were working on features that they thought would be valuable to customers, but it wasn't yet ready for any customers to try. I think they tried it with one small customer. They kind of like tested it out. Um, when I was there and the customer rejected it and said, this is, this is not like what we're interested in at all. I spent like a month kind of arguing with the architects that maybe instead of like introducing new services and ref and like moving code around, mm -hmm. we should like try and focus on some user value. I got a lot of like patronizing feedback that I just didn't understand microservice architecture. And when I understood microservice architecture and domain driven design, then I would see what they worked and was valuable. Anyway, that company went bankrupt. Um, I didn't get my last uh, month um, invoice Ooh. from them because they went bankrupt and they, and uh, yeah. <laughs> so that was quite a big failure. That was quite bad. So here's an interesting one because you, you said earlier that as an engineer, you like, or it's important that you understand what value means, what the customer really needs, where they're at. I find I'm working with, at the moment, with engineers who don't seem to care. I think they just want to sit down in a corner, code, deliver maybe solid code, I don't know, but they don't seem to be interested in even understanding what the customer wants. Do you think that is, I guess my, my next question will be like, what makes a good software engineer? And I guess my question to you is, is that part of being a good software engineer that you really care about understanding the business? 
Yeah, I think so. I think, um, or at least in software engineering and the projects that I work on, like business-based projects, like commercial software, because there's a lot of software that's written in the world, right? And probably engineers at NASA or, or, or engineers that write code for pacemakers have like slightly different. Um, yes. Different qualities would be more important, right? But I think in a commercial sense that, yeah, I think that probably the most important quality is um, a desire to like understand what the customer wants and how to deliver that value to them. And that like underpins everything that I do. And yeah, probably the most frustrating conversations I have is when I'm in a commercial space talking to engineers that, that don't seem to value that as much as I do. I think there's something with, I've encountered it a lot. I think there's a lot of software engineers that really care about the code and they kind of forget that the reason we write code is it's like <laughs> yes. a means to an end. It's not for itself. It's so that so there's some value that can be delivered at the end. There's some feature that's going to make a user pay for this or keep paying for this. Or yes. it's going to take away. It's going to take away some frustration from this user's life, and they're going to yep. be delighted by the feature, right? And it, they they do not care how clean the code is. They don't care how well unit tested it is. They don't care what framework or language version we're using, right? Now that's not to say that I don't care about all those things. I definitely do. But you need to remember sometimes when you're debating mm. that you need to do this version upgrade because it's got some little syntactic sugar feature that you want, and you know it's going to take a week, but you really want that feature. To be like, yeah, but is we're we gonna have one week where the user's not gonna be getting any value and the business isn't gonna be getting any value. Like, what's is that? Mm. Is it important enough to to forget that? Yeah. And I, I don't know how how it happens though. How do engineers? Because most engineers, I, I figure, get into this industry because where we want to build stuff. I don't know. For me, anyway, I, I got really excited the first time I started learning how to build things because I was like, wow, I'm actually like creating something out of nothing. Yes, and. Uh, I don't know, that seems, some people seem to lose that. Maybe it's because they work in organizations where they're just a cog in the machine. You're just a front-end developer. You write a bit of code. It goes to the QA team. Then it goes to the DevOps team. Then it's like three months before it's even in production. You have no idea if any users wanted that feature, if they like that feature, if they're using that feature. You're just so removed. And maybe mm -hmm. over time, you forget why you even became a developer to begin with. And then you're having arguments with me about why we should do this version upgrade, even though it's going to take two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you are VP of engineering at the moment, I understand. Director of engineering. A director of engineering. I apologize. And banks and their titles. Um, and so obviously you have a, have a team um, that you guide, manage. Talk to me about like when you build teams, what do you think like makes a good software engineer and a good software engineering team? That's like a massive, two massive questions, right? But so I've talked yeah. about, I think like a desire to be able to deliver value. And then so yeah. you go a step below that. How do you ensure you can consistently deliver value? There's the product side, right? Which is about making sure that the engineers like know the customer and what they want. Yep. Um, so that could be handled by a product product team and having engineers with a product mindset and commercial mindset. But then how the engineers actually do their work, I think this is where I really believe in continuous delivery and working in a, a lean mm -hmm. manner. So I've never liked um, when I worked in places that had long release cycles, like we were going to release once a month or once every two weeks. Yes. Because when I've worked in places that release a lot more frequently, I've discovered that I just feel like there's a, there's a lot less waste and it also encourages engineers to really think about what they're releasing because it's going to happen then and there. So the way that I prefer to work is that an engineer releases every single day. 
into a production mm-hmm. environment, or at least deploy stuff into a production environment behind a feature flag. And that brings a lot of technical practices that are required in for, for that in order for that to be viable, right? So mm-hmm. if you're doing releases that quickly, you can't have a manual testing team. You can't yeah. wait for them to raise bugs. So you need to be really good at writing automated tests. I wrote, t- I wrote tests test first, like I use TDD, and most yeah. of the really successful teams that I've worked as part of have been really focused on making sure that they drive out the code using tests. So just a good automated uh, testing is required so that you're not breaking things um, as you're releasing very quickly. I also think teams that are very collaborative work mm-hmm. best, so I really encourage pair programming. And, and again, the best teams I've worked on pair programmed a lot so that instead of having a code review process, you have a continuous code review process. You have someone giving feedback to you on the code that you're writing all the time. And also you're sharing knowledge between the team. If you like rotate pairs often and you pair all the time, then all of a sudden you don't have any part of the code that only one person knows about. You don't say, oh, okay, well, we can't release any changes to this service because Rob's not in. You just never have that problem. So XP call it collective code ownership where the entire mm-hmm. team owns everything and understands everything. And, and you're probably going to have specialists, right? But you never have a part of the code which is like, that's only understood by that one person. And if they leave, oh. we're screwed and we have to rewrite it. It's just spread throughout the team. So all, all this leads up to um, engineers supporting production environments directly, which I think is what DevOps was supposed to mean when it kind of became a term, mm-hmm. is that mm-hmm. um, Dev and Ops work together together. Um, it seems now that it's become a role, and so instead of an ops person, you have a DevOps person. And maybe they automate things <laughs> more than they used to. So yeah, I think if your engineering team is responsible for production, if they're releasing really frequently, daily, into production, and they've got lots of automation around their releases and their testing, mm-hmm. then you end up with really super stable environments and uh, engineers that are quite motivated and happy because they're able to see the changes they make like every day. So they have to like wait around for weeks for a QA team to raise bugs, for a DevOps team to figure out how to release it. So important what you just said. I just had this thought that what I'm seeing at the moment is that because unfortunately I'm not in the situation where we release super fast right now, that the work I do, the prep work or the the UX designer that's done, that becomes relatively quickly stale Mm. if you don't get it done and out. Um, And I, I don't mean three months. I mean like within weeks, basically. So this has such a knock-on effect on everything because then the clients who are thinking about things they want, their business is moving on, you then design for that, but then it doesn't get delivered. All that thinking that happens before becomes stale and the entire process becomes so messy. It's, it's really interesting and scary how quickly this actually happens. Yeah, I, th- I think there's something as well about that you, when you're able to get changes out very quickly with very little lead time, it changes everything around around you and you, you really start embracing yes. the, the embracing change. I think that's the difference. Yeah. I think if you, if you know that it takes you three months to get a release out, then you're much, much more careful and worried about edge cases because you're like, okay, well, what about this edge case? If that's yeah. important yes. and, we, and it takes us three months to fix it, then we need to get a, that in now, right? Whereas if I tell you, if you come right. up with an idea and one hour later I can get it in production, you can be like, okay, we can wait to discover what edge cases we need to cater for. Right. Yeah. So it completely like everything turns upside down where, where instead of like thinking about all the different possibilities, you're thinking about how can we find out which possibilities is, is the most important and how do we just, as long as we're working on the most important thing and getting it out quickly, then we just don't really have to worry too much about potential problems because we can fix them really quickly as we discover them. 
Yeah. I think that's what's great about software, right? Compared to like, if you're building a bridge, you can't refactor a bridge, right? But with software, if you have um, really good levels of automation and like refactoring skills within the team, then you can make changes so quickly in response to business realities that it's like, it's a, it's a differentiator, really. A business that can respond quickly to change mm-hmm. like more than its competitors is going to be more successful. I kind of went a bit off topic there. It's my fault. Um, uh, skills for engineers and, and teams. Is, is there anything else that comes to mind? What you're looking for? Um, like when I'm hiring, like even at the moment, I think TDD is like a must or at least can, okay. like some ability of TDD. Because yep. in my teams, because we really straight to production, we didn't even have any staging environments. It meant yep. that automation was really, really important. And I think that if you join that environment and didn't like really know how to do automated tests, then you wouldn't yep. be able to make changes safely. Yeah. So yeah, t- like TDD. I guess if we look for someone who's like a bit earlier in their career, it's more an openness to learn. Right. Because we've taught a few people TDD and they've been very successful because they don't have any of the baggage. Um, that a more senior engineer that has never done TDD might have about yeah. like, well, but I've been working for years and uh, I, why should I learn this skill now? Is it really that important? Um, but probably TDD and a couple of good programming languages. But really, we don't care so much about the technical side of things as long as they show an openness to learn, a lack of ego. Mm-hmm. Then I'm like, well, you can probably learn on the job. Um, so much, we like as an engineer, you're constantly learning. So um, if you have the right attitude then like yeah we can teach you know better pair programming practices tdd continuous delivery um, and i've seen it happen even with pretty experienced engineer um that some experienced engineers have a lot of bad habits um but he he'd worked in this one person in particular i'm thinking about he he'd worked in quite a few places he'd been working for like maybe 10 years but he never worked somewhere that really like embraced continuous delivery mm-hmm. but he he just came across as really like open and like eagerless and yeah. yeah after six months he was like one of the guns on the team pushing stuff out to production teaching others how to do TDD. Talk to me about ego. When we've worked together, you're quite opinionated about certain things and you're really a strong believer in it and you will push that through, which I think is great. So one one could interpret that as ego, which I, I think is not what you mean. But so talk to me a little bit about, about that. Ego, having like a high opinion of oneself is usually a bad thing um, or at least it stops right. you from being able to learn because if you think mm-hmm. that you're like right, then it's going to make you less receptive to other people saying like, oh, maybe there's a, there's a better way. There's a yeah. different way. Which is tough as you get older and more experienced um, and like maybe in some ways like better it's hard to keep checking your ego but i found it like really important i've been like schooled by people who have like one year experience in in software engineering finding like noticing a problem that i i'd be completely blind to right and if i had too much of an ego if i thought like there's nothing i can learn from this person then i wouldn't have been open to that i think the best teams i've worked on are full of people that really good really know what they're doing but don't let their egos get in the way of, of learning new things. Mm. You mentioned pairing and pairing is again, one of those things where people, it seems to be a Marmite thing with software engineers. And I've seen blog posts where people are like, it's the best thing ever. Everyone has to pair all the time. And other people are like, no, it's, it's, it's the devil incarnate. And it's really, it seems to ruffle feathers. A yeah. Lot. It's the same with TDD. I've heard a lot of people on the internet say TDD is a cult as in TDD doesn't really add value. But the people who use it believe in it so much that there has to be completely irrational. I've met engineers that are super skeptical about okay. TDD. And then when I show them how I work, they're like, oh, wow, this is great. And okay. it's just that they've never really seen it 
work. They've just seen it like done but badly, I guess. Um, they don't have the imagination to, to understand. And I think it's the same with pair programming. Um, I think there's something else that's a bit psychological about yes. pairing. Um, it's a, it's a, it's an extremely vulnerable activity because writing code is a creative endeavor. So it's not like you don't always know what code you're going to write. And so you're going to write like the wrong code and then delete it and then, you know, tweak a line around or you're going to be like stuck and you just have to think about like, what am I going to name this variable or what's the, mm -hmm. what's the right control flow here? And so if you have someone sitting next to you, or I guess because most work, so much work is done remotely now, if you have someone on a screen share with you, mm -hmm. they're just seeing you at, in this completely kind of open, vulnerable state. And mm -hmm. when I was a consultant, I would, um, we were working on the ground. I was working with individuals and I was, I've taught a lot of individuals CDD and pair programming. And what I noticed was, especially for people who are more senior, again, this is a theme of mine, people who are more senior were, were often really uncomfortable with pair programming. I would sit next to them and um, I mean, one gentleman actually told me, sorry, I can't type with you sitting next to me. Can you like go away, please? And I said, oh, I thought we are going to pair on this. And he's like, I'll show it to you later. I can't, I can't oh. type. So to him, he just like, he physically felt like he couldn't type if someone was watching him type. And we've seen this, all of us, right? When you're in front in a meeting and you just try to try, try to open a, I don't know, Outlook and, and, and set something up. People can't sometimes do it. It's really weird. Yeah. So if, you, if you're not used to it, I think it's just like a really vulnerable activity. And so it's difficult being vulnerable to someone else. And I think also you can feel exposed um, because, you know, maybe you're like a, got some fancy job title, you're the senior technical architect or something, but you write code just like the rest of us, like in a really kind of messy, like ad hoc <laughs> process where you're trying to figure out what the hell is going on. Um, and uh, if you, yeah, I think if you're not used to people seeing how you work, it can be quite daunting. But I've had successes and failures, but like I, I find that over time, it's just exposure therapy. Over time, as you pair more and more, you just realize like, okay, like maybe sometimes I feel very vulnerable and exposed, but then when we swap and, and my partner's um, like driving now, it's the same for them. And so I think pairing is difficult to get used to, but you just get this empathy for your coworkers that you mm. don't otherwise. And uh, yeah, the teams that have worked on, I've worked on that are really good at pairing have been the best, as I said before. They're just... You, Like the team members really like know each other, understand each other and learn from each other constantly. But uh, it is tough and, and it's draining as well. Um, like the constant that. communication, especially if you have like introverted people. And I guess that in engineering, you're probably more often to have people who are like more introverted than the general population. And so mm -hmm. I found I've worked on teams that are like super extroverted but like teams that are mixed as well. And um, you notice, I mean, even I'm, I'm pretty extroverted, but still if I pair program for like an entire day, I'm pretty exhausted at the end of it. I can see that. I mean, I've done this with my colleagues where you, you can pair a bit less than what you guys do, but there's also things you can pair on and it's just, it's draining. It's, it's hard work, right? Um, especially if you want to do it well. I think there's other arguments against pair programming when people, again, it's, it's hard because it's like the no true Scotsman fallacy. And I understand that if I, if I just say, well, they're not pairing right, then it sounds like um, it's, it's not a very strong argument, right? It, doesn't, it sounds pretty weak because it's like, oh, you're not doing it right. I'm doing it right. And then every, any time that any, there's any problem, I can just lean on that. Well, you weren't doing it right. But I do think that, there's, um, that pairing is a skill that you need to work on. And that's the problem is that people who don't know how to pair program, if they get thrown yeah. together, 
it can seem kind of pointless. And part of the skill, for example, is knowing when to swap, who should be driving, who should be navigating, knowing, understanding oh. their different roles, that the person who's driving is more focused on the mechanics of the code and the person who's navigating is thinking about what comes next. Um, mm-hmm. Not like there's, there's lots of like a- anti-patterns, I guess, pe- mistakes people make, like pointing out as soon as someone makes a mistake, oh, you typed that wrong. Oh, you should p- put var there, pointing out immediately. That's actually quite bad. Um, a lot of people would think that that's what you're there for. But yes. um, the person driving is probably going to notice their mistake after a second, just not not immediately. And if you if you keep interrupting their flow, telling them where the mistake is, it can get quite frustrating. So that's something you need to learn. I mean, it's just, and it's, you need to kind of be talking the entire time as well. And that's a skill in itself. Um, the people that I've taught to pair program, they didn't know how to communicate about the code. Actually, you'll, you'll find this, that um, people who don't pair struggle describing code to other engineers, just full stop. Whereas um, mm. when I was at the startup and we'd pair a lot, especially the less experienced devs that would join, they would pair like all day for months um, to, to build up their skills. And they became much better at speaking about code, describing code than people that I've known who've been working in the industry for 10 plus years. Does that then, on the back of that, also make better, more readable code, I would imagine? Yeah, because um, that's another pillar of code that you can release quickly is code that can be read and understood quickly, right? And refactored quickly. And so that's like clean code, which is a whole like topic in itself. But I think pairing really helps lead to clean code because you're getting feedback from someone that the code you're writing makes sense. Um, If your navigator's like, what's that mean or why do you name the function that and that's like a signal like oh i should maybe i should rename the function maybe we should discuss what this code means and and factor it so it's clearer which is the which is part of the purpose of code reviews um i feel like it's just a much faster higher bandwidth code review so talk to me about teams then so we've talked about some of the characteristics of individuals but what makes a good software engineering team and how can you help make a good software engineering team so uh, there was um, an internal study at Google uh, a while ago, maybe it's like 10 years ago, it could be even more, where they um, they analyzed all the different teams in Google across multiple different factors to try to find out, like that, answer that question, what makes a good team? Yeah. And the response was was kind of interesting. Um, I think a lot of like people in software engineering wouldn't have come to this conclusion themselves, but uh, they identified something called psychological safety as the biggest predictor of a team's performance. Yes. So psychological safety is when you is it is is it if a team has psychological safety it means that people aren't afraid to be vulnerable with each other or to criticize or challenge each other yes and i think that it can can kind of seem obvious in retrospect if you have a team where someone has no problem in a meeting saying like oh i'm not sure that's a good idea here's an alternative that's going to be better than a team where people are afraid to criticize each other because they think they might get in trouble or their manager might yell at them. Yeah. And uh, psychological safety is, is something that I think it's hard to exactly know when you have it because you're just like comfortable and relaxed, but you definitely know when you don't have it. Yes. And I've been in situations where I, I just don't speak up in a meeting because uh, like I think this, you know, people might take it the wrong way. They might think I'm look at me like I'm an idiot. They might dismiss me. And uh, <laughs> I think a lot of people can get into that situation at work, actually, where you just don't feel, you don't really feel safe. And when you have a team like that, the team's 
not going to be not going to perform very well. Actually, it seems like there's no, not much point in having a team that has no psychological safety because they're not really a team; they're just a group of individuals. It's so interesting you say this. I find this quite a lot, especially when you consult. Where, um, you know, sometimes you're in the room and you're like, I, I don't understand what this is about, what the client is saying, especially when the client is saying something. You're like, I don't. This doesn't make sense. But you're not saying it because you feel you might be the only one in the room. Um, and then you're like, I look like an idiot. And the client gets annoyed because they have to explain it the second or the third time, right? But especially when the client then starts with, oh, as I said before, blah, blah, blah. And then that's a bit of a telling off. But then quite frequently, in literally every single case, I find that if I don't understand this, there is at least one or two other people in the room who also don't. Yeah, always. I mean... Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there, Marcel. So if we talk about like how do I try to ensure psychological safety in my teams? Yeah. A technique actually I've been doing for a long time is asking stupid questions, like putting myself out there, showing that it's fine to say, sorry, <laughs> nice. I, I don't really understand what's going on. And like broadcasting that that's perfectly fine and acceptable. So I guess I, it's because I feel confident in my position that I can do that, right? So I kind of try to make others feel comfortable. And for years I've noticed that whenever I ask at a presentation or in a meeting, I'm oh, sorry, can you clarify that? And I get the clarification. I'll notice several other people normally going, oh, okay, right. And it just shows that yes. a bunch of us were lost. And it's just like, it's, it's so frustrating that like for whatever psychological re or team dynamic reasons, you're lost and you just feel like you can't, you know, even ask the question. A pet peeve of mine is acronyms. I like, I, I really dislike acronyms. Um, maybe you can have like a small set of accepted acronyms, but like, Having one specific to your business drives me drives me crazy, and I just remember uh, at the startup there was a couple of people in the management team that would like throw acronyms in presentations, and I would always clarify them, um, even ones that I knew. There was one that was like I don't know. There's this TAM. Do you know what TAM is? No. T A M. It's total addressable market. Like I had no idea what that was until a marketing person told me that. I'm like okay, and then there was a presentation, and they were like TAM this and TAM that, and I just said sorry, uh, what's TAM? And they said, oh, total addressable market. And you see the whole room go, oh. And this person would have just been talking for like 15 minutes with no one knowing what the hell they were saying. <laughs> um, so, yeah, whenever I see a, an acronym, I'm always, even if I know it, I'm always like, excuse me, what's that? Um, try never to use them myself. Working with you, you're a bit of a stickler for words, sometimes domain-specific wording. And I find this really interesting because we worked on a project together where we had something which was like, you know, called... Uh, an intervention or a project or a holding, you know, all these different different words that meant certain pieces of land. And I realized while I was going through the project that I was losing the words quite loosely. And then you sometimes were kind of stickling for getting the terminology right. Um, and it's, it can be really annoying, but it is so important ultimately, because yeah. otherwise... Communication is really important, right? And I think communication is really, really hard. And yes. I think... Um, the older I get, the more I just realize like how difficult it is. And I think the reason why communication is hard is because everyone thinks it's easy. What I mean by that is that everyone thinks that when they say things, that pe other people understand them. Correct. And it, it never happens. Actually, if you like say something to a group of four people, you're going to have four slightly different understandings of that thing, which is why I like always like double down on communication of like, repeat things say things more clearly make sure you're careful with the words that you use especially when you're talking about um like the business domain and yeah. uh, because this is so you're talking about things in the business domain that are going to be modeled by by the, the developers 
you want to mm-hmm. be like clear on what the meanings of different words are. Um, there is this weird thing though that I just can never get around where there's always two words for something. I don't know why. There's always two words for a d- domain concept wherever I've worked. Like, <laughs> like so that example um, that you were saying, we we had probably more than one word for a piece of land. Some, sometimes someone would say parcel. Someone, some people would say outline. There's probably a couple other words. Yeah. It was never just one word. And uh, it, like, yeah, I don't know why it always happens that there's always two words for everything. You know what my, my, my theory is? Um, I think that if you have more words, it allows more room for ambiguity. So you don't have to be exact. And then, you know, you, with two words, everyone can be like, yeah, I think that's roughly what I'm thinking. Whereas if you have one, you need to be really precise. And that's harder. Um, yeah, but it's better, no? It's better to not have the ambiguity. Uh, no doubt. But I think the problem that also people have is sometimes you start with the wrong word, which is fine, right? Or the wrong concept. And then over time, you feel like you have to adjust it. And that process of adjusting is really hard for some people because they have to let go of something and then shift their way of thinking about a domain. And I think some people really hate that because they like set in stone, never changing view of the world, basically. Yeah, that's just like this. That's not realistic, though, is it? I mean, even the word model, right? So like we talked about, I said domain model before. The word model means like an approximate version right you, you try to model reality so you have like a, yes. a simplified version because reality is infinitely complex um and that's what any model is right and of course because it's approximate it's always going to be wrong on some dimension and then even if it's perfect then the business reality changes and uh, it, the model has to change absolutely talk to me briefly about especially because you you have experience in, in in startups and i guess a lot of bootstrapping comes with that so bootstrapping is great. And, and as, as you said, you want to be fast. You want to get things out, short feedback cycles. But at the same time, there is sometimes criticism that then leads to really messy code and you accrue code debt. How do you find the balance line between the two? Or, or do you even have to find a balance line? Between like speed and, and tech debt? Yeah. Or, or you know, uh, doing what's needed in the moment versus, you know, not gold plating right now, but not preventing you to scale and do the right thing later yeah right i guess i guess that's like a skill in itself it's kind of architectural what you're talking about there's no knowing um knowing what you need to do now and what's possible for you to defer to me that's the art of Mm -hmm. architecture is like knowing when when is the last responsible moment to make a decision so that takes i think that takes a lot of experience Um, right so Gold plating, I guess the definition of gold plating is is building in features now that you don't need. Right? Yeah. So that then that becomes subjective. Everyone can argue. Well, I think that's gold plating. I think this is gold plating. So it's just like I don't have a good answer for that one. Um, definitely, I think that probably in the industry, um, engineers build like too many features and cater for too many edge cases too early. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, it makes the code worse and more brittle. I think over yes. we use this word over engineering, right? And it means that we've like written too much code. We've got too many features in here handling too many edge cases. And now it's probably harder to change. The more code you have, the, the harder it is to modify. Whereas I like to be quite lean, have like just enough to get us going and then add things uh, as, as they become important, as we realize they're important, add more to the code. Mm-hmm. So it's about like, I guess I can get more specific with like, 
um, performance optimization and okay and why um, why there's that that quote that premature performance optimization the root of all evil is because um, if you do it prematurely before you know that it's actually going to be an issue you make the code more convoluted and harder to change so it's better to actually discover your performance bottlenecks and focus on them the, the real ones when you're already like running in a production environment than is to try to anticipate them. And again, that all relies on being able to make changes like quickly and safely. If you don't, if you can't make changes quickly, if you don't have automated tests, then you probably think what I'm saying is like insane and, and incredibly risky because, well, we're going to release it. We're going to discover a performance problem that, that might be crippling and it's going to take us two months to fix it because we have all this manual process. So of course we have to like test it up front. Whereas in environments that I've worked in and that have released 20 times a day, we find a performance problem, we solve it, it's, it's out there and resolved in an hour. Cool. Look, um, so we just said you're, you're director of engineering at the moment. What's next for you? What's uh, exciting? What's the next big thing? Where are you going? Um, I guess it's this, this role. I'm, I've only just started and this is my first um, 100% management role. I think I'll be hands-on in the sense that I'll be pair programming with engineers, but it'll be more to like teach TDD rather than to deliver anything. I don't think I'll be picking up a ticket off Jira. So yeah, it's a new challenge for me. Basically I've got like several teams that we need to, that we want to transform and upskill. And also we want to hire a lot of people, which I don't know if you've heard Marcel is incredibly difficult anywhere right now to hire good people. Tell me about it. Yes. There is a supply and demand, um, asymmetry here. So I think it's a great time to be a software engineer. I would recommend anyone thinking of taking the plunge, go and do it. You're going to, there's like, there's so much interesting work around. Um, and it just sucks if you're like me and you're trying to hire. <laughs> um, where can, where can people find you if they, if they want to get in touch with you? Um, might be, you know, they might be seasoned software engineers and they might be interested in working with you or just getting into dialogue. Yeah. My email is revolucio at gmail.com. I'll put the email into the show notes. Fantastic. Look, thank you so much for talking with me. Oh, is that it? Man, it's already been an, almost an hour. Wow. Well, that's the thing, right? I think I can talk. It's funny. I feel like I scratched the surface. That's it for today's episode. For further details, have a look at the show notes in your podcast player or on theburnup.com. Lean and Agile are interesting to you. You may also want to pop by my blog at thedigitalbusinessanalyst.com. I'm very interested in your feedback and ideas and happy to discuss interesting opportunities from consulting to coaching to getting involved in actual projects. For inquiries, please visit theburnup.com. This podcast is produced by Burnup Media Limited under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, non-derivatives 4.0 license, which means you can share it as long as you give credit, but you cannot change it or make money of it. Until next time, Thanks again for listening and have a wonderful day.